the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Long list of quality job opportunities available. You'll never settle for just a job again. Visit ChristianJobs.com. ChristianJobs.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land... We unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420. The answer. All right, a good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. It is seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Thursday, the eighth morning of the month of division in the year of our Lord 2024. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we got a nice show lined up for you today. Uh, important show, quite honestly. We're going to talk to Ira Melman. You know, Fair, our friends. Um, which are uh, yeah, uh, Federation for? I'm, I'm sorry, I just got a message that I'm trying to respond to at the same time as the show opens. It's involving a guest, um, but at any rate, uh, yeah, fair. The Federation for American Immigration Reform uh, is at the border, and we're going to talk to Ira Melman, who is uh, one of the spokespersons for Fair, one of the leaders. Uh, these are the people that we count on. Uh, our friends at FAIR, as well as CIS, Center for Immigration Studies, these are the people that we count on to get the truth. We can't get the truth from the politicians because the politicians lie. And sometimes it doesn't matter which party they belong to, as we covered in at length yesterday. We don't know who we can trust and who we can't sometimes from the elected officials. So I look to organizations like FAIR, which are not biased or partisan and uh, want to stop the flow of illegal immigrants into this country that are causing so much crime, destruction, uh, uh, economic uh, collapse, absorbing of resources, and so many more things that you are all very acutely aware of. So um, Ira Melman is going to join us in half an hour from FAIR. Uh, then we have Dr. Everett Piper at 1010, as we do each and every Thursday. And I just literally got the message back from State Representative Brian Stewart, who's going to join us to talk about another disaster in the Ohio State House. Speaker Jason Stevens is, is, is worse than we thought. And I'm sorry to have to say it, 
but it is reality. Stevens and the Blue 22 did everything they could yesterday to stop Jerry Serino's Senate Bill 83 from coming up for a House vote despite extraordinary measures being taken to bring it up so that we can get rid of all of this wokeness and DEI and so forth in Ohio's schools, Ohio's uh, institutions of higher learning. And then they passed a budget, a $2 billion budget without input from a huge number of representatives. The Democrats sat there smiling. The Blue 22, otherwise known as the 22 trans Democrats, Republicans who identify through their actions as actual Democrats, or maybe they're actual Democrats who identify as Republicans solely for the purpose of elections. Either way, you understand the point. We can't trust the Republican Party. Not at the federal level and not at the state level either. The speaker stole the goddamn gavel from the hands of a conservative with the help of 33 Democrats. Democrats who had a super minority, had no seat at the table for essentially all legislation that could have been done for the good people of Ohio, and they were handed that power, and now they are returning, or excuse me, uh, Jason Stevens is returning their favor by by not allowing conservative legislation to come up for votes. This is inexcusable. Absolutely disastrous. So we're going to have uh, Brian Stewart come on. He's going to be coming on at either 1035 or 1110. And then we're also going to talk with Donovan O'Neill. Donovan O'Neill. Um, is with uh, um, uh, Americans for Prosperity, and he is going to join us to talk about the very same thing, except for uh, he's going to focus more on the the $2 billion. Uh, They put out a statement, did uh, uh, Americans for Prosperity, and the message is a strong one, and I said, let's discuss this, Uh, and we absolutely absolutely need to. They put out a statement essentially condemning the process by which this whole thing uh, got done. Americans for Prosperity Ohio raises concerns on the rushed passage of HB2. Following the vote today, uh, Donovan Donovan O'Neill released the statement, We are calling this rush spending bill House Bill 2 billion. Not House Bill 2. House Bill 2 billion. The concerning process used to pass House Bill 2 today rightly raises alarms on how the $2 billion in taxpayer dollars are being spent. A draft of HB2 was posted late last night and fast-tracked to a full-floor vote without discussion. It appears this bill was intentionally rushed to allow members to appropriate $350 million for pet projects for their home districts ahead of a competitive March primary election. This is just par for the course, I'm sorry to say. I'm very sorry to say. In fact, I'm disgusted to, to say, but that's the reality of the situation. So we will talk to Donovan O'Neill. We will talk to Brian Stewart. We will talk to Dr. Everett Piper, and we will talk to Ira Melman from FAIR on this morning's program. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of work, but we do need to work our way through all of it. And, of course, this is going to be one of those days when I when I ask you to be patient, look for a pitch to hit, and then hit it where they ain't. I know they feel like they're everywhere. They're fielders at every single spot, but hit it in between them. And that means pick your spot in between interviews, 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Either one of those numbers will get there. Let's get started with some of the news of the day after we do our Pledge of Allegiance. Patriots, stand, face your flag if you actually believe in it. 
If you believe in the surrender of American sovereignty, then you do not believe in the flag or the nation that it represents. Don't fake it by standing tall. Admit it and take a knee. Just like the unemployed quarterback, the woke soccer player, and all the other anti-American Marxists who support them. For the rest of us, all right, it appears we do not have it playing. Seth, can you uh, back me up? Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Appreciate that. Thank you, Seth. I'm actually going to start with a, a story that's not really a story. It's just kind of a continuation of what we have already known. You remember yesterday when I told you and, in fact, played for you uh, the the latest Joe Biden sees and speaks with dead people? Joe Biden literally talking about a conversation that he had when he was um, when he was elected or when he was handed the reins of power. I won't even say that he was elected. I don't think anybody listening to the show knows that he, or uh, uh, believes that he actually was elected. But at any rate, remember when he uh, said that he was speaking with uh, Mitterrand back when he was elected? Mitterrand died. Uh, the French leader died when uh, back in 1996. But Joe Biden claims to have had a conversation with him at a G7 summit right after he was elected. Well, apparently... That that's not all. Now he is claiming to have had a conversation with Helmut Kohl, former German Chancellor, who died in 2017. I mean, this is this is getting really, really creepy, really creepy. Biden claimed he spoke with late German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, who died in 2017, but Biden spoke with him and recalled a conversation with him from 2021. He attended three campaign reception events in New York yesterday. At the second and third events, two of them, he told donors about conversations surrounding January 6, 2021, at his first G7 meeting. It's the same conversation that he said he had with Mitterrand from France, who, was, who died in 1996. The same exact conversations, and they all had to do with January 6th. He claimed that he told Mitter, or Mitterrand uh, that America's back, and then Mitterrand said, how long are you back for? Remember, Mitterrand had been dead for 24 years, okay? And then he said, and then he said, you know, can you imagine, you know, if they had come in and 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 stormed your your capital and so on and so forth? Now he's telling a different group that he had the same conversation with a different European leader who was also dead. Same exact thing. At the second and third events, he said that Helmut Kohl, who died in 2017, was there with him at his first trip, foreign trip, as president, talking about January 6th in 2021. German Germany's chancellor was Angela Merkel, not the deceased Helmut Kohl. You see, only the United States will allow people who are dead to be president. They don't allow that in Germany. When Helmut Kohl died, they buried him. They don't allow that in France either. When Mitterrand died, they buried him. But in the United States, when Joe Biden dies, we prop him up behind a podium and move his mouth and his lips and we make him talk. We elect him president. We allow when 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 in the, in the United States when there's a corpse of a human being uh, that is president of the United States, we give it the nuclear codes, 
This is this is getting beyond frightening now. This man, Joe Biden, and you do recall this about a year and a half ago now, when Jackie Malorsky, Congresswoman from Indiana, died, issued a statement, a release of condolences to the family and, and some positive words, you know, a little obituary kind of a thing for her. And two weeks later, he's in front of a crowd saying, uh, where's Jackie? Oh, we're, we've got some great representative here, Jackie. I don't see Jackie. Where's Jackie? Jackie died. You said so two weeks ago. This is creepy, man. This is something that I'm just, uh, this isn't about partisanship at this moment. It will be in a second. I'll get back to bashing the leftists for being leftists. I will be partisan in support of conservatism. But, but this isn't partisanship talking. This is just freaky. And, and that wasn't the first time either, by the way. In 2022, Biden told supporters at a gathering in uh, Florida that he spoke with the man who invented insulin. Did you know this one? This is a direct quote. How From 2022, this is Joseph R. Biden. How many of you know somebody with diabetes and needs insulin? Do you know how much it costs to make that insulin drug for diabetes? It was invented by a man who did not patent it because he wanted it available for everyone. I spoke to him, okay? End quote. The man who invented insulin, in fact, there are two of them. They were co-discoverers, Frederick Banting and John McLeod. By the time Biden was born, which was in 1942, both of them were already dead. Understand that? Both of them were already dead. Biden says he spoke to them. Biden says he spoke to two dead insulin co-discoverers, Biden says he, he's looking for a dead uh, uh, congresswoman in a crowd, calling out her name, waiting for her to respond. Biden says he spoke to a dead French uh, 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 president. Biden said he spoke to a dead German chancellor. Biden doesn't just see people, dead people. Biden speaks with dead people. Dead people speak to Biden. It's a talent, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's because, like I said, when you are already a decaying, rotting corpse, and they elect you president, and then they prop you up behind a podium. I mean, maybe it's just a talent that you can confer with your fellow dead. I, I, I expect when I die, I'd be able to talk to people who are dead. Uh, you know, I want to see my parents. I want to see, uh, you know, grandpa. I want to see everybody that, I, you know, that has gone before me. So I guess when you're dead, that's what you do. You talk to other dead people. Problem is, our dead president is still in office, and that's a very, very serious problem. All right. Uh, so, like I said, that's that's not intended to be partisan. That is just an acknowledgement of a very serious problem here. And I will also point out something that others have pointed out in this regard. It is absolutely abhorrent, abhorrent, that the people in his life who purport to care about him, talking about his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, um, his kid, his brother, people who are supposed to care about him continue to push him through this, to watch him embarrass himself, to watch him suffer, to watch him just look so painfully unable to form coherent thoughts, all of these things, um, they don't care because this is all about power and this is all about profit. 
and they don't care how many times he stands before the assembled media and the world and, and embarrasses himself by looking like and sounding like, well, what he is, an 80-plus-year-old man who has lost it, who has lost his cognitive function. There is some movement, and I don't want to well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the, uh, the, the there's been a response from the opposition but um, it, it, yes I'm sorry from Hamas but it seems to be uh, a little over the top we're not sure where it is there's a continuing negotiation right now yeah um, it's it, it is painful um, He's seeing dead people. He's talking to dead people. He cannot talk on his own. Uh, he falls asleep during his own statements and is during his interviews and press conferences. Um, in, and this is what the Democrats want to run. I'm going to make a very direct statement here. I, I am starting to lean against the idea that he is going to make it to January. I, Dr. Gorka asked me on his show a couple of weeks ago. Um, whether or not Biden is going to make it to November. And I said they have no choice. They absolutely have no choice. Because obviously Kamala cannot do it. And obviously Gavin Newsom, greasy Gavin Newsom, is in charge of the state of California, which is in worse shape in so many different ways, economically, crime-wise, uh, and, and, and in virtually every way than, in, you know, than any other state in the country. That They can't do that either. And so I said they have to ride with him now. They, they've painted themselves into a corner. But I'm going to say it directly now. I don't think he is going to make it to November. Watching what has happened over the last couple of days alone, uh, talking to more dead people, uh, falling asleep during a press conference, not knowing what the press conference was about, not knowing what the, th- the topic was, not knowing what Hamas was, as he stands there and, and does this, I-, I, can't, I can't believe that they're going to go to battle with him uh, in, in, against Trump. I just can't. So my point being... I think Joel Gilbert's right. I think Joel Gilbert, who I interviewed for my Strictly Speaking TV show, um, who has written a book and who has produced a documentary called Michelle Obama 2024, I think he's right. We are looking at the third president of Barack Obama, third president presidential term, rather, of Barack Obama, um, with the name Michelle at the top of this one. But both Obamas will indeed be in the White House, whether it's as president and vice president, Somebody brought that up on this show the other day. I think it's a very, very interesting concept. It's terrifying because of the power that it would have to have an Obama-Obama 24 ticket, uh, which would be so appealing to the leftists in this country because they know who Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are. It'll be very appealing to some of those on the center left who might be terrified of Joe Biden, but enthusiastic about the idea of the the pair of Obama. So whether they're on the ticket together or it's just President Michelle, first gentleman Barack, uh, and uh, you know, and some other leftist sitting in the uh, in the uh, vice president's chair, um, I have to admit this is looking like it is going to be a real possibility because I do not think that they can get through. I I don't know if Joe Biden can survive physically the grind. And I know that's why they call lids at 10 a.m. and why he campaigns from the basement. So he doesn't have to, like, literally, you know, work himself to death. But I'm not sure he could physically survive the grueling campaign that would be in front of him over the course of the next nine months. I don't think he can do it. 
I think his mind goes a little bit more with every one of these long days where he had three different uh, events, campaign events in New York yesterday. I think his mind goes. I think his body physically fails a little bit more every day. I think this is real. I think this is real, that he we are watching the decline of Joe Biden to the point where uh, the family that has propped him up and has uh, said, you know, we need power and profit uh, more than we need our, our uh, loved one's health. I think eventually they're going to have to pull him in. They're going to have to pull him in and give him a nice spot next to the stair and window and a pair of soft styrofoam slippers so he can shuffle his way around the home uh, like people in his condition do. I just think that's what's going to end up happening. All right. Um, we're going to talk to Ira Melman. We're going to talk about this disaster at the border. It is dead, the border bill. The Democrats are using exactly what you would expect them to use. Uh, they're using every trick in the book, every every trick in the playbook, if you will. Um, we had, I had somebody today who uh, pointed out this is straight out of Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, right? Straight out. Create a crisis. Propose a solution to it that is untenable. Throw in unrelated issues to that. And then when it's rejected, blame the uh, individuals who rejected it. That's what they've done. They've created a crisis. 10 million illegal aliens crossing, a 10 million man march. Propose a multi-billion dollar solution to it in the form of this horrific bill that would not solve it. Throw in a bunch of uh, spending in other places that is not appealing to the other party, the Republicans. Then when they reject it, blame them for the entire crisis that was intentionally created. It's an Alinsky. Best on iTunes and the Google Play Store. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always write radio with Bob Frantz. Of the answer. All right, it is 9.35. Thanks for being with us. The ridiculous and I think inappropriately named border bill uh, is dead. Uh, that's good news, obviously. Uh, the bad news is they are still screaming for it and demanding that it be passed. Uh, and if they don't, it's the Republicans then who own the border crisis. That's the game that they have played. They have essentially uh, followed Alinsky's rules for radicals here. They created a crisis. Then they created a solution that would be unacceptable to everybody on the other side. And then they blame the other side when the uh, crisis worsens. So they're doing it uh, exactly as promised. Meanwhile, in Texas, for example, the Biden administration is doing more than just supporting the invasion of this country by way of the Invasion Authorization Act. They are literally making it easier for illegals to come in. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, ever since they went to the Supreme Court over this, the Biden administration did, for the right to cut down the barriers, the border wire, the uh, razor wire, and uh, remove the shipping containers that are creating kind of a makeshift wall because it's too hard for illegals to come into the United States. The Biden administration not just turning the the other way and not looking at it, they're intentionally facilitating the invasion, for crying out loud. So as you know, uh, one organization that has been fighting this from the very beginning, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, very outspoken about this, not just in Texas, but the entire impact of illegal immigration in all of its uh, uh, different forms on the United States. They went down to have a look. In fact, they're there right now. They've been at Eagle Pass, Texas, at the U.S.-Mexico border this week. Uh, joining us now from San Antonio is Ira Melman, the media director at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, with a firsthand report of what they saw down there at Eagle Pass. Ira, it's good to have you back on our program. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. 
Uh, good morning to you. So um, we'll get into the legislation and we'll get into the blame and all of the other things that are going on in Washington right now. But let's go to where you were. Um, you went to Eagle Pass. I, I did see, by the way, um, an interview with uh, Dr. Phil, who went down and did one of these, you know, kind of uh, observe and report kind of visits down there. And he said he never, ever thought it could be as bad as it was. It was absolutely insane. What about you, Ira, when you got a first-hand look, not just videos on TV, but you got a first-hand look at things that were, the way things were going down there? Tell us what you saw. Well, you know, the bad news is that it is still pretty bad down there. Uh, the good news is that what Texas has done, Governor Abbott has done, you mentioned the shipping containers and the razor wire. Uh, e- even though, the, you know, the feds now have the green light to cut it down, uh, they, they've not been doing that much of the cutting, and Texas has simply come in right behind them and replaced whatever they have cut cut down. Uh, and they have shifted a lot of the traffic now to Arizona and California. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Governor Abbott uh, is not the president, uh, but he is the governor of Texas. He can do what he needs to do to protect the state of Texas. Uh, it's now Arizona and California's problem more than it is Texas's. Uh, and that you need the federal government or you need the governors of those states step up. But, you know, you you talk to the people in these communities along the border. We were in, as you mentioned, Eagle Pass and in Del Rio, uh, Mm -hmm. places in between. To to a man and woman, every single one of them said, uh, starting on January 20th, 2021, things just went crazy. Uh, That the border had been reasonably under control up until that point, and that immediately they, they saw their lives turned upside down. They saw crime invade their neighborhoods. Uh, we spoke to one of the to the county prosecutor in Kinney County, a small county. Uh, it only has about thirty two hundred people. Uh, he says he's now prosecuting five thousand felonies. He's prosecuting more felonies than he has people living in his county, and it's all due to the open border that the Biden administration has created. That's an astounding number, and. Um... I'm curious, uh, you're talking to folks down there who are saying this really started literally on day one, January 20th of 2021, that this started to happen when Biden rolled back and repealed, I think, some 94 different orders that Trump had used to bring the border under control. It wasn't perfect, but uh, from what I'm told by some estimates, it was the the best uh, border control that we've had in 45 years in terms of number of crossings so so when you say you're hearing that from the folks there what are you seeing with your eyes about the crossers we keep hearing from those who go down there ira that there are so many military aged males not families not a lot of old people not a lot of kids that are fleeing persecution and so forth but it's overwhelmingly uh younger adult males that's what uh they're they're saying they see is that what you guys have seen that is exactly what we saw. We were out one night. We were just riding up and down along the border there. Uh, we happened to see a whole bunch of Border Patrol cars and a, and a bus uh, parked on the side of the road right along the Rio Grande River. Uh, and the people that they were bringing out, every single one was a military-aged young man. There were no women and children among the groups. Uh, one of the people that we saw bring, coming out of the bush, it was actually wearing camouflage. Uh, you know, it, it may have been just to you know, try to make it more difficult to, to spot him. But nevertheless, you know, the, these were military-aged young men. Uh, they, they're not uh, asylum seekers. These are economic migrants. They are coming here because they are looking for jobs here in the United States. 
look, I mean, we all understand why people want to improve their economic conditions, but that is not the purpose of our asylum laws, which are being massively abused. Uh, you know, you mentioned the bill. It does nothing to stop uh, asylum abuse. So this is what we're dealing with. And this was just, you know, one incident that we saw along the border. Uh, it is happening all across the border. You know, you obviously can't be in every place at one time, uh, but you, you can bet that this is happening up and down the border uh, in Texas and increasingly now in Arizona and California, where the cartels have shifted a lot of the traffic in response to Governor Abbott's actions. We're talking to Ira Melman, uh, media director at FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. They have spent this week down there at the border. We're talking to Ira from San Antonio. So, you know, all of the visits that we see from politicians and from uh, uh, organizations like yourself and, 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 and law enforcement are down there in Texas because of the way things have, you know, have gone. But now that they're pushing that traffic over to Arizona, what kind of information do we have? And, 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 you know, to New Mexico, maybe perhaps a little bit less than even California. Um, are, are the, are the sectors there as bad as Eagle Pass and Del Rio have been in Texas because uh, of the barriers being put up in Texas? And what is the likelihood that something similar can be done in those states? Well, you know, it just seems that the cartels are smart. You know, they're not going to bring people in where, you know, they have to encounter all these obstacles and you have a state government that is intense on trying to keep people out. You know, they're going to go to the softer spots along the border. And what we've seen is that the numbers have shot up in Arizona and California and, you know, to some extent even in New Mexico. So, it, But what it proved is that it, this can be deterred. And if the governors of California and Arizona want to deter it, uh, all they have to do is follow the model that uh, Texas has, has taken here. Uh, clearly, you know, I don't see Governor, Ab, uh, Governor Newsom in California running to do any of this stuff anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, but if he wants to, uh, he, he can do it. Uh, but most importantly... We should have an administration, a presidential administration, that is willing to do this. As you pointed out, on day one, uh, the president signed something like 94 orders, basically gutting all the enforcement capability of our uh, Border Patrol uh, and other immigration services here in the United States. Uh, He needs to restore that. You know, he claims that he doesn't have the authority to do it. He had the authority to cancel it. Uh, he's now talking about some kind of plan B that entails executive action. He has the authority. The law says that he has to stop illegal immigration. Uh, he has claimed that his administration has claimed they have unlimited discretion not to enforce our laws. Uh, all he has to do is enforce the laws that are on the books. Uh, but so far, he has refused to do that because he doesn't want to. I have... Um over the course of the last number of years that I've been interacting with FAIR and even coming down for the events, uh, holding their feet to the fire, I've the one thing that I have had a hard time processing is whenever I ask any of your representation is about the numbers. Um, I'm told that, you know, there are just as many people uh, who are here illegally who are leaving as there are coming in because I've, I've questioned that 11 to 12 to 13 to 14 million number because we've been hearing it for a couple of decades. And, and I'm thinking, well, they keep coming in. I mean, why is that number not growing? And especially now in these last three years, we are now told that roughly nine and a half million since Biden took office have been permitted, uh, well, who have come in here and who are known, 
uh, under catch and release. And then another, well, I think it was seven and a half of those, and then roughly two million or so known gotaways. So, so what is the number according to Fair Ira? You know, it ought to be if if there's close to ten million new ones just in the last three years, and we add them to the fourteen million or so that we knew about before, it ought to be around twenty five million. But I've received pushback from Fair whenever I give those estimates. What can you say? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the number that we use is about $16.5 million, and we admit that that is a conservative estimate. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to exaggerate. We, we just go with the available data. Uh, you, you know, there are a lot of things you can't know, but um, our, our number that we're using is about $16.5 million. You know, you mentioned all the people who have been encountered coming into the country uh, since President Biden took office. Uh, for the first part of his administration, Title 42 was in place. And a lot of those people were simply put back across the border immediately. So, yes, they were counted as having come into the United States illegally, but they were immediately pushed back. Uh, he canceled Title 42 in May of 2023. So, you know, over the past, what, eight, nine months, we've seen a huge surge. Uh, you know, in December alone, there were 371,000 border encounters. Uh, and, you know, what Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, has been saying privately is that somewhere in the, the range between 70 and 85 percent of those people have actually been released into the United States. So, you know, our 16.5 uh, million was a number that was um, we, we re- did the research uh, that came out last year. It, it is probably higher than that, but I, I can't give you a precise figure. Okay. Well, even a range though would be helpful because, like I said, I mean, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm just I'm just seeing these numbers and I'm staggered by them. And now let me ask you about the proposed legislation. Um, they they claim that this would be the solution that all of you know it gives the Republicans everything they wanted, which of course is a joke because it allows five thousand per day. This is before the president would then have to make a decision as to whether or not if it's an average of five thousand a day over over seven days, which of course as we know comes to about over one point eight million per year. The president can then decide to uh, kind of put a moratorium on new uh, um, uh, crossers or or admissions to the country under asylum or any other rules for a period of time as he deems necessary. So, you know, we, we have this this legislation that says let's bring another one point eight million in minimum and then we can it'll probably go beyond that. Um, and they call that border security. Oh, we add to that, yeah, it, Ira. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry, and I'm, I'm pausing. My apologies. Oh. Add to that the quote unquote uh, uh, goal, if you will, of, of Biden that has been expressed, which is the pathway to citizenship for the ones who are already here. They want to make voters out of these illegals that they have allowed to come in. And considering they're coming in carrying signs that say, thank you, Biden, thank you, Biden, they're probably not wrong to think that. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, it was laughable that that was being sold as an immigration enforcement bill. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, they set a trap. Mitch McConnell and James Lankford walked right into it. Uh, I, I don't know what they were thinking, uh, but they completely got rolled uh, on this. Uh, you know, if you, if you think about this, you mentioned the 1.8 million figure, which is exactly what, you know, it, if you're allowing 5,000 people a day into the country, it comes to 1.8 million. That means we would be allowing uh, by a statute, allowing more illegal aliens into the country every year than we admit legal immigrants into the country every year. It did nothing to stop asylum abuse. In fact, it encourages asylum abuse, that bill. Uh, it says that if you come to the border and say, I want uh, asylum here in the United States, you will get work authorization from day one. 
the reason we had a six-month delay was precisely to deter economic migrants from abusing the asylum system. They were abusing it anyway. Uh, but now we're encouraging more, or this bill would have encouraged more asylum abuse because all you have to do is come and say, I want asylum, and they give you work authorization. Uh, you get into the queue. Uh, you wait here for 10 years before you're, you ever get a day in court. Uh, these are the sorts of things that this legislation would have done. Uh, and it's just it boggles the imagination how Mitch McConnell and James Lankford just walked into the trap that was set for them. Yeah, they really did, and uh, and and, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, and and to call this what it is. And in the meantime, you know they're they're trying to funnel sixty billion dollars to their favorite pet project, which is literally to secure another nation's border. And and I found it interesting that in the uh, you know uh, kind of kind of written into those three hundred seventy pages of this monstrosity um, was the word Ukrainian border control. The words Ukrainian border control. So they want to spend sixty billion and send it to Ukraine. They wanted to send fourteen billion to Oh, no, I'm sorry, $17 billion to Israel, which, by the way, that one I do support for because it's an entirely different animal, um, and then $10 billion to Gaza for quote-unquote humanitarian aid. Roughly 70% of the expenditures went to other places other than our own border. We get some you know, less than 30% of the money. It was like $13 billion, actually, that were going to be spent here. And it's not even about the money anyway because it's about policy, isn't it, Ira? It, it is about policy. It, it, this, what we've seen over the past three years is the direct result of policies made by this administration. Uh, if they made other policies, the situation would, be, would not be nearly as bad. Uh, but, you know, what needs to happen is for them to take H.R. 2, the bill that was passed by the House last May. Uh, it, it is a fantastic border bill. Uh, it, it does precisely the kinds of things that we've been talking about that are necessary to secure our border and to end the abuse of asylum. That should have gone in as part of the foreign aid bill. The president wants this foreign aid bill. Uh, he needs to understand that there is a price to pay, and that is that we have to secure our own borders at the same time. Uh, you know, we, we're not a, a, a foreign policy group. Uh, the issue of foreign aid is not really in our wheelhouse. But, you know, it, it, they certainly had the leverage there. Uh, this was something the president desperately wanted. Uh, they had a, a bill that was ready to go. It had already passed the House of Representatives. That was what the House was pushing for. And McConnell just basically uh, squandered it. He, he just blew it all up. Uh, allowed James Langford to go into that room, get rolled by Chuck Schumer, uh, and come away with a bill that actually makes the situation worse than it already is. Yeah, and you know it's um, it's extraordinarily important important to 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 realize um, you know and I, that you guys are not politicians and and you're not politically affiliated. You guys are about policy with respect to the border. So I understand when you say that you know uh, the expenditures on foreign aid and foreign policy are not in your wheelhouse. But when they tie those dollars to quote unquote border security for the it almost feels like it's a bone. It's we, we want to send sixty billion. We know it's not popular, but we would have sent sixty billion to. Um, uh, to Ukraine, and in order to get some support for that, we'll throw you a couple of bones and give you a few things on border security, even though you and I just yep. discussed how it doesn't really secure the border, but that's kind of how they couch it. So it does kind of still tie into what you guys you know, advocate for. Yeah. You, you know who's really going to get rich off of this are the NGOs. Uh, there was billions of dollars in that bill that would go to uh, – organizations like Catholic Charities, Lutheran Family Services. Uh, these are the organizations that the government has been contact, contracting with uh, to resettle 
all the millions of illegal aliens that they have led into the country. So, you know, the, the, a lot of that money uh, would actually have gone to the organizations that have been facilitating and encouraging mass illegal immigration. So it, it was just an awful bill on every level. Uh, and, you know, as you point out, the White House is now trying to say, oh, we negotiated good faith, we gave you everything you wanted, and, and you just walked away. No, it was a bad bill from the very, very start. Uh, it did nothing for the American people. It does nothing to secure our borders, to end asylum abuse, to end the administration's abuse of parole authority. Uh, it, it just codified illegal immigration at a level that is actually higher than legal immigration in the United States. Last question for you, Ira Melman, and thank you for joining us from uh, from well from San Antonio. But you've been uh, at Eagle Pass and Del Rio sectors uh, this week uh, with uh, with the Federation for American Immigration Reform. Last question for you is about dollars. You guys always tabulate the estimated cost of illegal immigration in this country, and that in, that comes from everything from, from the crimes committed to uh, uh, resources used, the amount of money to educate the the, the young, to to clothe, to house, to feed and and to provide health care for all of these people you guys always have a price tag on it where do we stand now that we have added this new nine and a half to ten million uh, illegals in the last uh, in the last three years alone well again with the caveat that the last time we sat down and actually went through all the numbers uh was last june uh it netted out at about 151 billion dollars in cost to the american taxpayer the, the gross cost was about 182 billion uh it netted out you know if you uh consider the taxes that they're paid you know that are paid by illegal aliens mm-hmm. uh it, it came to 151 billion dollars out of the pockets of the american public it has probably gone up since then uh it, but again you know we we only quantified those things that were quantifiable uh are we admit that the 151 was probably a conservative estimate even a year ago. Uh, it's probably even more conservative today. And that's annually. That's annually, yes. Annually, uh, okay. yeah. So it, we're just going to do this year after year, and the numbers are going to get bigger and bigger. Yeah, and, and and then by the way, Ira, and I know I said last question, but how do you guys feel when you see things happening like what are going on in New York right now, where they are now, in addition to all of the federal funds that are spent doing this, I don't know if you guys calculate this part, but the city of New York deciding to spend $53 million giving $1,000 prepaid credit cards to all of the illegals there because they don't like the food that they're being served on taxpayer dimes, so therefore they have to give them a credit card so they can order what they want. Yeah, and New York is, you know, complaining that they're not getting help from Washington. They're, they're creating this problem for themselves. An astounding figure that I saw a few weeks ago, New York City now spends more on the migrants than they spend on fire, police, and sanitation uh, every year. So New Yorkers are paying more to take care of the migrants than they are for uh, what they're getting in those three areas of service, vital public services from the, uh, from the city. So th- this is a problem. Look, it starts in Washington, uh, but it is brought on itself in New York City by their policies, and they keep making it worse and worse. Well, that's what uh, happens when you decide you want to be a sanctuary city. Uh, that's what it that's what it looks like. You want to provide sanctuary, you got to pay for it. Uh, Ira Melman, Federation for American Immigration Reform Media Director. Ira, thank you for what you guys do. Let's stay in close contact with one another. I want to share all of the information you guys have with everybody that I can reach. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. There's Ira Melman live from Texas. He's in San Antonio. <coughs> Obviously, they're based in, they're based uh, in the capital in Washington D.C., but they go down there. <laughs> 
call Tim Vaughn at 216-525-1818. 216-525-1818. Thank you for finally noticing. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. All right, second hour is underway now, seven minutes after 10 o'clock on this Thursday. It's the eighth morning of the second month in the year of our Lord, 2024, also known as the month of division. Do not let it divide us, friends. Do not let it do its job. Um, thanks to uh, Ira Melman, Ira Melman and FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, live from Texas, where they have been at the border all week. Uh, so they can give first-hand accounting of what's going on rather than just talking policy from the halls of uh, Washington, D.C. They went down to see it for themselves. Great report from Ira Melman. Uh, I want to welcome our good friend Dr. Everett Piper back to the program now, as uh, we do each and every Thursday. There is a culture war going on. We need leaders. Dr. Piper is one of them. So we rally behind him. Dr. Piper is a... Uh, Former university president, a retired university president, maybe the better word. He is also a uh, twice-weekly columnist of the Washington Times. He's a best-selling author. He also happens to be a county commissioner in his native Osage County, Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Piper, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great. As always, great to be on your show. So, um, normally we just kind of do the things that you have written about because they're always very interesting to discuss and analyze, but I'm just going to get your opinion of what has happened over the course of the last two or three days. I have been uh, on a bit of a rant of late, specifically uh, at the Republican Party, because they are allowing the Democrat Party to get away with... um, all kinds of things that they should not, and uh, they cannot unify um, and 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 try to do what is right with respect to protecting and preserving the security and the sovereignty of this country. They cannot seem to come together to even impeach the man who has uh, directed homeland insecurity for three years. Um, they won't vote uh, on a standalone unilateral, or not unilateral, a standalone bill uh, for Israel to send them aid unless it's uh, unless it comes with sixty billion dollars being sent to Ukraine and so on and so forth. Um, uh, the Republican Party seems to be in just um, chaos mode right now. Um, something that the Democrats are taking full advantage of. That's how I have seen it. Give me your thoughts, Doctor Piper. Well. I've gone on my rant, if you will. I don't mean to say that in a negative way or a pejorative way against what you just did. But um, sometimes it's necessary that we raise our voice. Sometimes it's necessary that we make it very clear where we stand on issues and that we're not going to accept ongoing capitulation or compromise. Um, In Oklahoma, I've said it a thousand times on your show, you know, we boast of being the reddest of red states because we didn't have one county vote blue in the last five successive presidential elections. But yet, when you see the way Oklahoma Republicans act down in Oklahoma City, our state capital, they act more purple than they do red, because they're always compromising. They always want to have a conversation and discussion. Bob, there's a time where evil should not be talked about any longer. I don't sit around and have a conversation about sin. As a Christian, I am obligated to confess sin, to confront sin, not have a conversation about it. And maybe our Republican friends would do well to apply that spiritual principle to their political lives. There's a time where we expect them to 
to drive a stake in the ground and to be truly, boldly, uncompromisingly conservative. Conserve the principles that we elected you to conserve. Be true to the common sense principle of no nation can exist unless it guards and protects its border. Please, can we just all agree on that? And by the way, it's wrong to sexually groom children, surely. Whether we're middle-of-the-road or right-wing radicals, we can all agree that children should be protected in our culture. Can we just agree as a Republican Party that these basic issues should be worth fighting for? And yes, we should drive a stake in the ground. And frankly, at the end of the day, pragmatically, politically, it works to our advantage because we distinguish ourselves from the other party rather than blurring the boundaries. You know, to the the latter point um, about you know grooming kids and sexualizing kids and all of these other things that are going on, you you speak frequently when we talk, Doctor Piper, about um, Superintendent Ryan Walters. Um, he's very very active of late. I'm, I'm following him on social media. I'm seeing him turn up in news stories. He is targeting woke teachers. Uh, he is, you know, there's a, there's a tweet here about him saying, good for Ryan Walters. He's ruffling all the right feathers. And he is. We have rules, regulations, and laws that say you, uh, you're not going to go and indoctrinate kids. And we still have left wing activists who do it. He is targeting them, trying to get drag queens out of classrooms. And then he just cut a video two days ago in which he is speaking and opining on the same border bill, uh, that we have all been following very closely and that I just asked you about. So it sounds like, you know, you, you've got some strong leadership there. And Again, I know you've talked about Ryan Walters before, but those uh, those are those are positive developments. Well, it, we have Ryan Walters, and absolutely, I, I I'm a huge fan of, of him and consider him a, a a friend. And I don't say that lightly. He and I have met frequently and talked, and I'm so pleased that he has done exactly what he told me he would do when he ran for election. Uh, Dusty Beavers is a, that was a national race that we've heard about. A pastor down here who does not apologize for defending the Christian heritage of the United States of America. Um, these, there are people that we need to rally around and support, because you know as well as I do that if you go to their social media, you've got a lot of leftists, a lot of middle-of-the-road Republicans that are criticizing Ryan Walters and saying, well, he needs to stop talking about um, getting God back into the classroom. We, we don't want... Christian nationalism. We've got to have religious freedom. There are a lot of conservatives out there that have bought the lie that Ryan Walters is somehow wrong to remind us that historically, historically, our nation is founded on a biblical ethic. And as John Adams said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. That's a fact. We are a Christian nation. There was a time when the Supreme Court even said that. So we need to stand beside those that are willing to put their neck out, because even their Republican counterparts are taking shots at them. And Jim Langford, let's talk about Langford and the border thing. I know Langford personally. He invited me to go to the State of the Union address um, as his guest once. Langford's a good man. He's a Christian man. He's got conservative principles. Why in the world he's compromising on this border thing is beyond me is beyond me and beyond imagination why he would think that this is a logical political or even a a principled thing to do uh, I, I don't know but we need to call them into account even if we consider them friends 
Yeah, and I'm glad to hear you say that. And by the way, Ryan Walters uh, is even going after PETA. He tweeted out a, he tweeted out a message. I guess PETA wanted him to uh, demand that the Ten Commandments of, for for animals or something like that, or Ten PETA Commandments, be uh, appear in all of Oklahoma school classrooms. And uh, he responded by uh, scarfing a burger uh, on, on on camera for uh, for the PETA friend. So I I like the cut of that guy's jib. I'll just put it that way. Uh, yeah. Okay. And by the way, I'm so glad you brought up uh, Langford too. Um, uh, you know, with them, with Republicans like these, who needs Democrats? If this is, I mean, seriously, and, and and I don't know if he was an equal part of crafting that bill because he believes in surrendering authority and surrendering the border and allowing 1.8 million to come across and giving more power to Alejandro Mayorkas, who's being impeached for for not securing the border. I don't know if he believed all that or if he was just really, really weak and uh, and and ineffective in trying to stop the others who co-wrote that bill. Uh, uh, but but it is it is absolutely yeah. shameful, and I think it's probably going to be something that Langford's career never recovers from. Here, here's my guess, knowing Langford as I do, and again, I don't consider him the devil. Um, I, I consider him um, a biblical man who probably this is what he's probably doing. He would pull you aside and look and say, "Look, Woody Hayes and his philosophy of football was to pound it up the middle." for a three- or four-yard gain, and then lose one or two. You can't throw a Hail Mary every time you've got the ball, otherwise you're going to lose the game. So Langford is probably saying incremental gain. Republicans need to understand the value of incrementalism. I get that. Strategically, I get that. But if that's the game you're playing, then you need to tell your constituents why and make sure they understand the gains you're making are only two, three, four yards, but ultimately you think you're positioning yourself to score. And none of us see it. None of us see any incrementalism here working to the advantage of securing our borders. So I don't get it, but I'm guessing he would probably lecture us a bit on incrementalism. Does that make sense? It does. Yes, it does. I think that's well said. We're talking to Dr. Everett Piper this morning on AM 1420, The Answer. Let's get into some of the week's work in the Washington Times. You know, our founding fathers, we are told, drew a, a line, built a wall, if you will, between church and state. I don't think that's accurate, but that's the way it is framed by some, which is kind of what you're tackling here by uh, the column, are Christ- conservative Christians too political? They want us to shut up uh, when it comes to preaching from the pulpit, um, political matters, and you say what? Well, okay, this is going to end up in the church curriculum, in your Sunday school class, or maybe even from the pulpit in your local churches. Everybody, I'm telling you, this curriculum is being pushed across the nation right now by evangelical leaders. A couple of the key leaders that are pushing this are named David French and Russell Moore. Russell Moore, Southern Baptist, David French, known for being a conservative who's a never-Trumper and writes for the New York Times now. Mm-hmm. Both of these guys, along with other evangelical leaders, are pushing a curic- curriculum that's called the after party. And the curriculum that they're pushing into the churches basically is this. The, the, the body of Christ has become too political. We've compromised the gospel for the sake of right-wing Republican politics. We need to stop, because Jesus was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And we need to stop politicizing Christianity. Okay, that's what they're saying. Well, to that, I respond by saying what I've said on your show before, basically with a bunch of rhetorical questions. Who decided that the 
abolition of slavery was political and not biblical, if you want to go back in history. Who decided that the execution of an unborn child was political and not biblical? Who decided that the definition of a woman, that she's a biological fact, not the fabrication or fantasy of a dysphoric man, who decided that that was a political issue rather than a biblical issue? And as you know, in my article, I go on and on and on and say, Mr. French and, and, and Mr. Mort, please tell me, please tell me, can you explain why it's right for the state to presume to de- define marriage, which is a sacrament of the church, while fighting to keep the government out of the church's business is wrong? What, why is that political and not a biblical stance? Can you, can you tell me why the conf- confiscation of private property through taxation and debt and inflation is, is right? while defending the right of citizens to work hard and enjoy the fruits of their labor is wrong? I mean, I could, I mean the, why is it wrong for us to defend our nation's borders? Because God told Israel to do the same, but somehow it's too political. It's too political for us to stand in line and say, no, if you tear down the borders, we, we can't sustain this. We have no nation without borders. They, they flip the whole conversation on its ear, and they could accuse Republicans, conservative Christians, for being too political, while they are being political, telling us to stop be political because they clearly are never Trumpers and they don't want the church to continue to support that particular MAGA agenda. Be very weary of the after-party curriculum. And here's the kicker on this. Who's paying for David Trench and Russell Moore and these evangelical leaders to push this curriculum out across the nation? left-wing Democrat billionaires like Soros, the Rockefellers, the Tides Foundation, and others. They're bankrolling this thing. Do you think maybe they're renting an evangelical for the sake of their political agenda? Yeah, they are. And if you don't see it, you're blind as a bat. Renting an evangelical. That's a great way to phrase it. And that's very important to note that, too, because that is who is driving this. And it is clearly an attempt to try to depoliticize the church or the churches or Christianity. They are essentially saying, no, we just want to replace your politics with ours. Uh, it's, it's not about, it's not about getting politics out. It's about advancing left wing causes, social justice causes, which you talk about in the article as well. Uh, Dr. Piper, let's move on to uh, ask Dr. E this week. This is, and, and here we are. You are an evangelical leader. You're a Christian uh, man and a, and, a, and, a, and a spokesperson for Christ, but we're going to ask you to play politics here. This is fantastic. Dear Dr. E, I'm trying to teach my children the importance of understanding the values of our founding fathers. More specifically, I want my kids to understand why the writers of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence believed as they did and what ideas influenced them most profoundly as they gave birth to our nation. If you were asked, and what, uh, if, if you were asked what one person most single-handedly influenced the founding of the United States, what would you say? Homeschooling mom in South Dakota. I love this question. Let's hear your answer. Okay, I don't have to guess at this. And it's not a matter of my opinion or yours. This is a fact. Why? Because we go back to a research project that was done in 1973 by two political scientists named Donald Lutz and Charles Heinemann. They decided that they were going to do a comprehensive survey of everything that was published. And I do mean everything. Everything that was, was published in the Library of Congress between 1760 and 1807. They read every 
single book, every single document, every single speech that was published in the Library of Congress between 1760 and 1807. Why? That was our founding period. Now, what was their objective? They wanted to document who was referenced most in those particular uh, seminal documents of the United States of America. Who was quoted most? Was it Locke? Was it Montesquieu? Was it Hume? Was it Hobbes? Uh, Maybe it was Plutarch and Cicero. Who was referenced most as the most influential person ideologically on America? And guess what? By far, the most quoted person and the most quoted document in the uh, birth period of the United States of America was the book of Deuteronomy. And who authored Deuteronomy? Moses. So it is a proven fact that Moses was the most influential person in the founding of our culture. Person after person quoted Moses. In fact, Bruce Feller, in his particular book, titled America's Prophet, tells us that Moses' influence on America and on the founding fathers is irrefutable. It's because of Moses that we have the liberty best. It's because of Moses that we grounded our Constitution in the assumptions of the Ten Commandments. It's because of Moses that we understand the paradox of liberty and law. But you have no liberty unless you learn to live within the laws. And if you get rid of the big laws of God, ten simple laws, you're going to have reams of little laws imposed upon you by the government. That's Moses that we're referring to. So who influenced the way we live today and the way we think today more than any other person? Irrefutably, empirically, we can point to the data. It's Moses. That's such a remarkable revelation, because until I read your article, I never knew that. <clears throat> I never thought of that, actually. You know, I would have probably, had I been thinking about trying to answer uh, the question of your uh, reader and writer, uh, I would have looked at ancient philosophers, Greek philosophers, or, or, or individuals, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that have been known to influence, you know, the development of states in the past, but I have never, ever uh, thought about the fact that it would be Moses himself in the book of Deuteronomy. This is why we love having you on, and I know that's why the Washington Times loves having you in their pages, because uh, people learn a lot from you. Dr. Piper, last question for you, and this is uh, going to have to be a short one, but you and I both watched a video, and you tweeted it. <clears throat> this is from Elon Musk. Uh, promoting um, a documentary that uh, is being produced, um, and it's going to be and is available now on X. It's by uh, uh, Robbie Starbuck and his wife Landon, and it's called, uh, or excuse me, Robbie and Landon Starbuck, uh, and um, it's called "The War on Children." And it really does a phenomenal job. You tweeted, yet we have people like David French and Dee Moore telling us we're too political from your previous column for telling our neighbors to vote against this kind of trash. I tweeted in response to this, Satan himself could not be doing a more effective job of advancing this evil agenda. And then I stopped and I said, wait a second, he is. Because I think this is truly being driven by Satan himself. You want to speak to this video and uh, this, uh, this documentary? Yeah, and I know I, I need to be quick and honor your time, but the bottom line is people need to go to your Twitter feed and watch that quick video that Elon Musk put out. The debauchery, the grooming of children, it's evil. It is blatantly satanic what we're doing to our children right now, grooming them sexually, tearing down their identity, confusing them, using them as sexual objects, sexualizing children. The list goes on, teaching them that America should be dismantled and should be destroyed. All of these ideas are what? They're, they're anti-freedom, they're anti-human, they're satanic. They're built upon a lie. And my land, if we can't at least rise up and say, this is wrong, 
this is wrong. It's not political. Again, challenging Russell Moore and David French again, there is nothing political about saying you will not sexually groom my child, you will not open my borders and let people come in and steal our freedom and steal our country. These things are simply wrong. And you're not going to have a drag queen performance and celebrate minors being taught how to put dollar bills in the G-strings of these dudes that are pretending to be women. This is wrong, and we need to confront it. And even Elon Musk, who I don't think may, lives under any pretension of being a Christian, recognizes this as, as what it is, satanic. It, it, it truly is. And uh, <clears throat> I had not seen this, by the way, until you're, you sent me the actual tweet um, about this. I had not seen this, that this documentary was being made. We're going to endeavor to get Robbie Orlando uh, on the program so that we can discuss this. In that three-minute and 21-second little trailer clip, though, it is enough. I don't even know how long the whole thing is, but I've seen enough in just those three three minutes and 21 seconds to be just so disgusted by what is being done. Uh, the reason I'm not playing it is because the language of the speakers that are being interviewed in this, uh, while while you know horrific, do not even come close to doing it justice. You have to see the imagery. You have to see the videos and the photos and the, uh, you know, the, the true, you know, uh, demonstrations of what is being done to kids and what they are being exposed to and in fact what is being forced upon them. It is grotesque and it is satanic. And I'm so glad you shared this with me so that I can share it with others. We need to, uh, we need to have an informed populace if we are going to step stand up against this type of evil. And it will take a unified effort to make that happen. So thank you, Dr. Piper, for that as well. Uh, Dr. Everett Piper, always a pleasure. Follow him on Twitter so you can see the things that he sends me to. He's Dr. Everett with two T's at the end. Dr. Everett Piper on Twitter. Thank you, Doctor. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. 1028, we'll take a time out here. And on the other side, we're going to go to the State House in Columbus. Brian Stewart, state representative, was a first-hand witness yesterday to more of the insanity being carried out by the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives and his Democrat partners. That's right, Republican Speaker Jason Stevens and his Democrat partners continuing to conspire to stop the will of the people in this state from being carried out. With 1420, the answer. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, it is 1036 now, almost, uh, on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks again to Dr. Everett Piper. Make sure to follow him on Twitter. He's always got great stories and ends Piper with two T's. Thanks also. Uh, we spoke in uh, hour number one with Ira Melman from Fair down in Texas. They were at the border for uh, most of this week. They're in San Antonio now. <clears throat> Got a great report there. Let's bring it closer to home now, though. Let's uh, let's go to Columbus and find out what's going on in the State House. Yesterday, I was expecting we're going to talk to the sponsor of Senate Bill eighty three, Jerry Serino, on tomorrow's program. Jerry and I scheduled that earlier this week. Probably should have had him today. But yesterday, his very important vote, which passed the Senate and just needs to get through the House to take wokeness and DEI and all kinds of other uh, trash out of. Um, uh, collegiate uh, classrooms and universities, <clears throat> it didn't get a vote yesterday. Why didn't it, get, didn't it get a vote yesterday? Because the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, Jason Stevens, didn't want it to get a vote yesterday. And that's something that uh, the guy who was supposed to be Speaker coming out of the uh, caucus uh, uh, two years ago now, uh, well, not two years ago, but a January ago, uh, Derek Marin tweeted the following. At Jason Stevens... 
excuse me, <clears throat> at Jason Stevens, refused to recognize 30 Republicans trying to offer a motion to have SB 83 vote. Blue 22 stayed in their seats and watched conservatives battle for a vote and offered no help. To all the conservative college students and staff that, is, that are subjected to liberal bias daily, we understand that are fighting for you. Stay strong. We will as well. Well, I wanted to find out if that's exactly how this all went down. So I reached out to Congress, or excuse me, State Representative Brian Stewart to uh, testify, and that's what he's here to do right now on AM 1420, The Answer. Representative Stewart, good to have you back. How are you? Always good to be here, Bob. Thanks. So I asked you yesterday via text, is this how it really went down? And you said absolutely 100%. Can you uh, clarify and give us uh, a little bit more of an explanation? Sure. So, uh, you know, it was good to be on with you recently talking about Senate Bill 83 and the importance of why we need to get that passed. Uh, And we had talked about how there was only one session day, you know, between now and the the March primary. We're not scheduled to be back, I think, until until April. And, you know, if we couldn't get this done yesterday, you know, the concern is it, it, it allows the speaker to continue to run up the clock. And so um, our caucus was canceled. We didn't have an opportunity to even talk about this with, you know, the full, uh, with the speaker and the staff and the full body. And so that kind of left us with, we have maneuvers under the rules to try to make these uh, things happen. And one of them was we had a floor amendment to the massive spending bill that we passed uh, we were, you know, we were basically asked to rubber stamp, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for higher education, while at the same time this priority bill uh, to reform higher education was stalled. So we tried. We had a floor amendment filed to uh, amend Senate Bill 83 into the spending bill. Uh, no one was recognized to offer that floor amendment, and uh, you know, to have a sort of pair of suspenders along with our belt, we also had. Uh, a motion uh, that many people were attempting to offer to actually suspend the rules and simply bring up Senate Bill 83 uh, on its own. And uh, the speaker, as he has uh, routinely done when conservatives are trying to do things that uh, Allison Russo and the Democrats don't want us to do, uh, he simply refuses to recognize us, ignores Republicans, and uh, uh, refuses to let us represent our constituents. So is he speaking to any of you? Is he giving any explanation as to why he would just completely ignore you and thus your constituents? No, we had a uh, caucus scheduled. You know, Bob, I have never been asked to vote on a budget bill where you don't have a discussion within the caucus. And we were supposed to have an hour-long caucus, not not a great caucus, but at least an hour-long meeting before the vote, uh, which would have been our first opportunity to talk about this budget bill. Um, that's typically where we would have said, and, and I believe actually, you know, Derek Marin did um, make the speaker aware of what his plans were and what we wanted to see happen. Uh, as a result, that caucus was canceled. There was no communication. And so both sides essentially had to do what they felt was right. Uh, you know, we did what we thought was right for uh, our constituents in the state of Ohio. And uh, once again, we had to listen to, you know, Democrats get unlimited time to speak and decry our bills and give these kind of hysterical speeches. And Republicans are not afforded the same opportunity uh, by our allegedly Republican speaker. We are talking with uh, Brian Stewart, state representative. Um, is this just what we feared when 
the blue 22, as they're sometimes called, and I call them 22 trans Democrats, um, when they sided with the Democrats in the uh, in the House and gave Jason, Jason Stevens the gavel, we feared that there were going to be long um, term paybacks uh, that uh, speak that Stevens was going to give them what they wanted uh, in a host of different ways over the course of this session. Uh, is that what we're watching right now? Is this just straight up? Jason Stevens knows that the Democrats hate the idea that there would be, uh, you know, um, uh, an equity of thought and ideology in college camp on college campuses rather than the left wing echo chambers that they are. They hate the idea of uh, SB eighty three, and uh, and this is what Jason Stevens owes them to get their, uh, you know, to get their uh, return on their investment of of giving him the gavel instead of Derek Maron. That's our belief, Bob. I mean, when we came into this General Assembly, uh, the Democrats' first priority was trying to derail uh, my Ohio Constitution Protection Amendment. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why the Speaker did not allow us to have uh, a vote on that until it was too late to make the ballot in May, when we should have been on. Their second highest priority was stopping Senate Bill 83. And that's why, you know, this was included in the budget. The House stripped it out uh, because Democrats wanted it out. Uh, this bill has passed the relevant committee. It is waiting to go onto the floor, uh, and we can't get it there because Democrats don't want it to pass. And, you know, frankly, Bob, the, the, the spending bill we passed the other day is more of the same. It is handouts to a chosen uh, U-22 uh, <clears throat> at the expense of a lot of Republican counties. We'll we'll talk more about the the spending bill in a moment, and we're going to have Donovan O'Neill. I saw you retweeted their uh, their press release <clears throat> from uh, AFP Ohio. We're going to have him on uh, after you at about eleven ten to talk more about that too. But sticking on eighty three for just a moment, um, the the other twenty two have. I asked you if Jason Stevens has spoken to anybody about any of this, and 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 what about the other twenty two? I'm told that they're looking for redemption. I'm told that they're looking to try to mend fences. I'm told that they don't like wearing this uh, label of being, you know, in bed with the Democrats and not uh, standing up for the uh, constituents that gave them their seats and so forth, and they're looking to make things right. Have any of them offered explanation as to why they just sat there and why they didn't join the 30 signatures on that motion to suspend uh, in order to get uh, SB 83 to a vote? Yeah, Bob, I mean, I'm getting tired of this kind of uh, line that, well, you know, we, we really want to see things get better. No, they want to take away the consequences for what they did last January. If they really wanted to try to mend fences, they would support us. They would support us sometimes when we're trying to get these things done, right? Um, they're not helping us get Senate Bill 83 on the floor. They're not speaking up and saying that, this budget process is wrong and unfair. They're not speaking up and saying, Speaker, allow our colleagues to speak on the floor and do their job. We get no support on that. I understand they'd love things to go back to normal to where they don't have consequences for the vote they took. But so long as they keep propping up the current system that we have, um, I I don't see a whole lot of uh, change there. I mean, it's gotten so bad, Representative Brian Stewart, um, that... 
I feel like we don't have uh, not only a supermajority, but even a majority in the House. We're supposed to have a conservative Republican supermajority based on the numbers um, uh, in in the Ohio House. And I feel like those 22 are Democrats now. Uh, and, I, and I know we finally did, you know, we overrode the governor's veto, uh, you know, on the SAFE Act and everything else. And, yeah, there was a moment of, hey, look, things are better now. But you, then they come right back to this. And they, they get in bed with the Democrats, and Speaker Stevens, presiding over all of it, says, no, we will not allow HB 83 to become law, or SB 83 to become law in the state of Ohio. We're not going to do this because our Democrat masters tell us not to. I, I, I hope I'm not being over the top with that, but that's what it feels like. We don't have a majority. We have a Democrat majority. Uh, that, that's been our that's – a, that's what we've been wrestling with since January of last year. There are these little moments where, you know, an issue as big as – you know, the SAFE Act comes along. And yes, I mean, that's a high profile issue that Republic, you know, 90 plus percent of Republicans are aligned on and it, 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 and we get a lot of calls from home. But anything short of that, you know, unless people are really engaged and paying attention, um, there's a whole lot of prior Republican conservative priorities that are just dying on the vine here because of the situation we're in. So going back now to HB2, um, I like what uh, AFP Ohio said. They call it HB2 billion. Uh, it's a $2 billion budget bill that apparently, and you brought this up in every other, uh, instance, the caucus, you have caucused for a period of time before you go in there and vote, and that did not happen. There was no discussion. This was just a $2 billion bill, up or down, and, um, it appropriates $350 million for pet projects. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. You know, we've done a capital – every General Assembly, you will typically do a capital bill. Uh, this is a way to kind of fund some projects back home, right? You know, an important road, an important bridge, you know, things where we bring Columbus money back to our district. Uh, in this case, you had a bill that was introduced uh, – that was released quietly. Uh, it was just posted to a website uh, on the night before last – the night before the vote. We weren't even sent a copy. Usually, you know, the budget comes out, you get an email or a call that says, hey, the budget's released, go take a look, let us know what questions you have. Didn't even get a heads up that the bill was out. So we find this thing on the website and, you know, start reading late in the night to try to find out what's in it. Because it's already been preordained that we're going to have a vote the next day at 2 p.m. no matter what. So we then come to the next morning, the Finance Committee has an 11-minute hearing on a $2 billion bill sends it to the floor, and still, we're like, well, we've got an hour, we've got a caucus scheduled at 1 o'clock. We're at least going to go in there and talk about the bill. He's going to go in there and find out what's in it. That was canceled, too, right? So we literally voted on a $2 billion By whom? bill. By whom? Who makes that call? By the speaker. The speaker can cancel the caucus? Yes. Wow. Okay, continue. No meeting, no opportunity to talk about what's in the bill. So we're left to try to figure it out on our own. And what you find pretty quickly, Bob, is that if you're a Democrat or you're one of the 22 who voted for Jason Stevens, you made out very well in this bill. Your district is getting quite a lot of funding for the things that those members want. If you're a member that did not support the speaker, we have some members that got zero dollars. We had some members that got $27,000 out of $350 million. We have 15 Republican counties that got zero dollars. By contrast, every single county that votes Democrat swimming in cash. And that's what we voted on yesterday. And and also the blue twenty two districts as well. Absolutely. Right? I'm assuming have, they're they're swimming. 
Yes. I mean, the speaker has over $16 million. That's fairly typical. Um, you have members getting $11 million, $10 million, $21 million, $14 million. By contrast, most of the folks who are not in the 22, yeah, you know, 100000 for your district here or there, 200000 here or there or less. Uh, the disparity is pretty obvious. This bill was about rewarding people who gave them the gavel, and that's it. So what can be done? Uh, well, by the way, there were a couple of exceptions, I'm assuming, anyway. I was looking at the, the uh, uh, tweet by uh, Representative Williams, and uh, Josh Williams is not a blue 22, but he's flexing the $250,000 he brought for the Toledo School of Arts and Strategic Community Investment Fund, talking about all the money he was able to bring back to Lucas County. So there were some exceptions to this, right? Sure. I mean, it's a capital bill. Um, there, there are members who got you know, what I would consider to be table scraps. And some people did better than others. Um, And look, it is difficult to vote against, for some people, it is difficult to vote against a bill that includes money for your your district. Um, And so I don't begrudge... Especially if you want to be reelected. Correct. Uh, But, you know, Bob, this is exactly the kind of process that all of us sit back here in Ohio and decry in Washington, D.C., Right. Yeah. If Nancy Pelosi put a budget bill on the floor of the United States House of Representatives under this process, we would be gnashing our teeth and saying, how could we possibly be expected to rubber stamp a bill like that under those circumstances? That's why I voted no. Um, I'll vote for a fair capital budget someday. And, you know, I've always taken care of my district and we've always been successful at doing so. But this is an unusually uh, unfair process, an unusually non-transparent process and with less than 24 hours to even talk about this thing i just didn't feel comfortable putting my name to it no i don't blame you i wouldn't have either and i'd be very upset uh if i was in your in a district uh, with a representative who did uh, it's it's unconscionable so my question is is what can be done about this now i, I mean i don't know the rules i don't know the procedures i just feel like they found a way for reasons that I don't think justified it, to boot Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, are there any tools, is there an apparatus in place that can allow you to change the Speaker? Because this is, again, this is worse than, I think, the actual theft. I think the theft of the Speaker's gavel, which is what it was in the first place, was unconscionable. But now to continue this with $2 billion and, what did you say, 20 counties? Or was it 14? or? Fifteen Republican counties, by my count, that got zero dollars. Didn't get a nickel. This is unconscionable. This is something that cannot be allowed. So, is there a process of any kind that that can that can allow another vote and 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 to uh, to replace the speaker? Well, the the rules are difficult to manage. When you know the other thing they did is once the twenty two got the speaker in, they also went along with a rules package that makes it incredibly difficult. Uh, to remove him. Um, there are methods and there are, but look, it's going to take changing people's votes, right? I mean, people are going, you know, there's no way to kind of rerun this. And if, if Democrats and, these, and, and uh, their Republican allies still want him to be there, um, that's where we are for now. Um, I do think, obviously, we need change. And I think that is part of the argument here. But um, in the when you say where do we go from here, one of the one of the other interesting things yesterday was, you know, Senate President Matt Huffman put out a a memo that sort of uh, dis- discredited this idea that we were being told that well this has all been ordained with the Senate, 
The House gets to spend its $350 million however it wants, and the Senate will spend $350 million however it wants, and there will be no sort of oversight checks and balances one chamber against the other. Senate President made clear that is not the case. There is no guarantee that if you got money in this budget yesterday, that it's still going to be there uh, come June when this thing may actually get signed into law, if it does. And so, you know, I've described this budget as fool's gold. This is campaign fodder. This was passed so that endangered members could go back today and do what they're doing, put out a press release, pretending that they've secured money for their district when they haven't. This is not the law. And so that's all this was yesterday. And uh, I think, unfortunately, they've kind of set up some of these uh, districts for failure because they may not get what they're being told that they're going to get. Um, the scuttlebutt uh, it continues to be in uh, circles around the, the state house that uh, Matt Huffman is is going to because he's term limited out there is going to come over and challenge Stevens for the speakership. Um, is that something you hear as well? I think that is uh, probably the uh, worst kept secret in Columbus. Okay, uh, that's a great way to say it. I was being a little bit more a little bit more uh, uh, quiet about it, but at any rate, um, would, would that solve the problem? Do you think? Would you think the support would be there for that? Look, I think we need to go back to having a speaker who has the support of a majority of the Republican caucus. And I, to this day, uh, the current speaker does not have that. They know this. The open conversation in Columbus is that they're, they're not even attempting to get to a majority of the Republican caucus. They know the only path to continuing as we are is 15 Republicans and 35 Democrats. And, you know, I don't think that is possible. Uh, we need to get back to Republicans picking a Republican speaker and caring more about what a majority of the Republican caucus thinks than what the Democratic caucus thinks. Yeah, yeah well, that's that's very well said. That's exactly the point. And uh, considering the constituency, the red state constituency, constituency that we have uh, broken down all over all of these districts, that's what they expect. That's exactly what they expect. And uh, it's about time that it gets delivered. I am disgusted by this. means if you've got kids in colleges uh, throughout this uh, state, all Ohio colleges and universities, and you were counting on having some sort of ideological diversity instead of the left-wing indoctrination centers that they currently are, and you don't have that, and your kids are going to their colleges and coming back unrecognizable to you, just know it's because Jason Stevens, Republican Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, said that's how it's supposed to be. I want everybody to know, along with the 22 uh, trans Dems, the blue 22, that that sided with the Democrats and gave him his gavel. That's the reason your kids are going to continue to endure this if you choose to send them to Ohio colleges. Brian Stewart, State Representative, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Keep fighting the good fight, and we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. 1056. Do you hear that? Jason Stevens, Democrat, blue 22. Democrats siding with the actual registered Democrats now control the Ohio House of Representatives. There is no Republican control of the Ohio House. Don't believe your lying eyes. There, the number of R's is an illusion. It's, it's a mirage. It's a fantasy. It's a daydream. It doesn't exist. The majority belongs to the Democrats including Speaker Jason Stevens. 
to 52886. That's AM to 52886 to tell Congress to support AM radio. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, we move into hour number three now. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420, The Answer. It's nine minutes past the hour of 11 o'clock on this Thursday, the eighth morning of the month of division in the year of of our Lord, 2024. Thanks again to State Representative Brian Stewart. Follow him. On Twitter at Brian Stewart OH, at Brian Stewart OH. I always like to try to give you these handles so you can correspond with these folks the same way I do. Uh, we spoke earlier this morning with um, Ira Melman from FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, there in Texas, witnessing the carnage firsthand of the Biden open borders policy and the attempted. Invasion Authorization Act uh, put forth by uh, the Democrats and some Republicans. We also spoke with Dr. Everett Piper uh, in hour number two. If you missed any of those conversations, they are worth your time. Go to, um, after the show today, they'll be posted about an hour after the show. You'll be able to listen to the uh, stuff that you missed at whkradio.com, whkradio.com. So, Representative Brian Stewart and I just discussed a couple of things, including uh, Speaker Jason Stevens' refusal to bring House Bill, or excuse me, Senate Bill 83 up for a vote. It already passed the Senate. It passed the requisite Ohio uh, committee that it needed to get out of, or House committee, rather, that it needed to get out of in order to come to the floor for a full vote, but Stevens won't do it. What we have determined between that and the budget Lack of uh, caucusing and discussion yesterday, we have determined that the state of Ohio now has a Democrat majority in its House. On the House side of the legislative body, the uh, General Assembly has a Republican Senate, and it has a Democrat House. There's no other way to to describe this. Uh, It's a reality. Jason Stevens is doing the bidding of the Democrats who gave him his power when he stole the gavel from uh, Derek Maron last year. The 22 Republicans who joined those Democrats in making that uh, speaker steal of 22 happen, uh, you know, or from 23 happen, which is the gang of 22, they sat there yesterday and did not object to the proceedings. The passage of a $2 billion budget filled with pet projects for certain Um, districts in Ohio, namely the 22 districts of Republicans and the Democrats themselves, 
Meanwhile, those who did not join Speaker, Ste- Speaker Stevens' theft of the gavel went home empty-handed. No discussion. So the only way to describe this is the Republic, or excuse me, the Democrat super minority in the Ohio House has become the majority. When you add their numbers to the 22 trans Dems who are now essentially finished their transition, they've just become full-on Democrats. And a Democrat speaker, that's what we have. I've been bragging and flexing about Ohio as a red state for some time now. I don't think we can do that. I don't think we can do that. Considering the fact that they just did what they did on November 7th with issue one and with then the legalization of weed on issue two and now the fact that we can't even push back with a conservative Republican supermajority in both chambers of the Ohio General Assembly, I think we just have to acknowledge we're no longer a red state because the Republican Party is weak and feckless in this state and it has now been taken over by the Democrats. Turncoats all. Stevens and 22 turncoats have given the majority to the Democrats. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, and I'm sorry to sound like negative Nelly or or whatever it is you want to call it or Debbie Downer, but that's the reality of it. Let's um, let's turn to AFP Ohio, <clears throat> Americans for Prosperity Ohio, Director um, Donovan O'Neill joining us now for some reaction and maybe make a little bit of sense of this. Uh, Donovan, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, Bob. Happy to be here chatting with you. Yeah, well, I'm chatting with you, but I'm not happy about it. And it's not no reflection on you. It's because of what you're about to talk about. Uh, you guys issued a pretty strong press release about HB two billion. Tell us. Yeah, well, you know, we were we were trying to track this legislation in real time. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with our organization, we're one of the state's large nation's largest grassroots advocacy organizations. I describe us as putting a megaphone to the voices of Ohioans are frustrated with the direction of our state. And that's what we're doing in this statement is really echoing the concerns we hear around the state that what's going on in Columbus right now between the the overspending and the lack of prioritization on legislation that actually matters and will impact all and benefit all Ohioans, uh, we're doing things like this, DC style legislating where we're inter- where we got members in Columbus introducing legislation in the dark of night and rushing it through in under 24 hours. Uh, to then have members figure out what's actually in it after they've been told to vote for it. Uh, this, this legislation is insanity, and it, it just it lacks transparency. And uh, we're going to raise our hands, and our activists are going to raise their hands across the state and say, hey, hold on a minute, this isn't how you run a state. Well, you're exactly right. This is not how you're supposed to run a state. And thank you for the background around what AFP does, and because uh, I'm a strong supporter of it. Um, so, so do you have any input when you guys work and and you know your activism uh, uh, triggers? Do you guys actually con- connect with some of these representatives? And did you get any sense or any idea that this was going to uh, go down the way it did with this two billion dollar budget? Well, Bob, it was really hard to keep a, get a finger on Paul. The usual order of business when it comes to legislation, especially legislation where you're going to be appropriating hundreds of millions, or in this case, $2 billion, it, it's, a tr- it's usually a transparent process, right? You, you, you put the bills out, uh, the bill is introduced, the language is introduced, there's committee hearings where, where constituents, citizens are able to either watch online from the comfort of their home or join us. We'll bring folks to the state house to sit in the committee rooms and, and hear the legislative process debate kind of play out. Uh, but in a situation like this, where the bill's introduced at 8 p.m. at night, uh, the committee hearing's at 10 a.m., 
and the vote on the floor is forced to happen at 2 p.m. that, that same afternoon, uh, I don't know anybody who can just drop what they're doing and, and speed down to Columbus to try to raise their hand and have their voice heard. So we were trying to kind of track this in real time as it was evolving mm-hmm. and understand if it was as bad as it was sounding like it was shaping up to be. And you found out that it was. It was every every bit as bad as that. You know, I was just talking to Brian Stewart. He said 15 counties got $0 of those $2 billion. 15 counties, and all of them are Republican-represented, and they are not among the, uh, the the Blue 22. None of them are Democrat. None, none of them are the Democrat, uh, new Democrats, if you will, that are the 22 sellouts who uh, gave the, the gavel to uh, the, 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 the thief-in-chief, uh, Speaker Stevens. Um, those are the people who suffer. If you happen to live in a district where you are represented by somebody who actually did their jobs and represented themselves as what they are, which is conservatives who are looking out for their best interests, you get hosed in this deal. Well, absolutely. And Representative Brian Stewart's a well-respected conservative fighter in Columbus, you know, who, who himself raised his hand and said, hey, we got to, you know, this isn't the way to do policymaking. This isn't the way to appropriate you know, $2 billion. But I want to zoom in a little bit on the $700 million, this the Strategic Community Investments Fund. You know, for your listeners who aren't aware, this was something, the $700 million was something that was debated in the biennial state budget. So almost a year ago, this money was earmarked. But I want to talk about where that money came from. This was money that came from excess revenue that the state had acquired. So taxpayer money, right? Taxpayer money that was sent to Columbus, that was really kind of sort of over and above what the state of Ohio needed to run its operations. And they said, we're going to put it over here, the Strategic Community Reinvestments Fund. I'm going to call it a slush fund uh, for lawmakers to sort of identify pet projects and things they want to do in their district. Now, you know, you can have that debate of whether, you know, when the state gets more money, what it should do with it. My opinion would be is you send it back to the taxpayers. That's an amendment that Representative Thaddeus Claggett tried to get hurt on the floor but wasn't recognized by the Speaker. That amendment would have put the money back as a refund to property tax owners, property taxpayers, right? Folks who are feeling a lot of pain right now because of high property values, high property taxes that they're experiencing in their communities. That's what I would recommend folks do. We had a few would recommend folks do. When the state takes in more money than it needs, it gives it back to the people who paid it. Uh, but let's go down the – let's just say they continue this process and they allocate – this $700 million for a variety of community investments and and projects in their districts, we should be doing that process in a fair, transparent manner, not picking half of that fund and saying the House gets to spend half of it, the Senate gets to spend the other half. What what they've done in the last 24 hours with this is they've just said, we we know best how to spend this money. We don't want to hear public input on it, and we're going to force it through the process in less than 24 hours to get it done. It just, it adds... People are already frustrated, as you know, uh, with the, the the way government operates in this country. Is this only exacerbates that problem? And I got to wonder why they would put themselves through this um, if it's not in some ways politically motivated with the March 19th primaries coming up. Well, of course it is. And you're, of course, correct to call it a slush fund, this community reinvestment fund. That's exactly what it is. We're talking with uh, uh, Donovan O'Neill, director of AFP Ohio, the It's Americans for Prosperity Ohio. So, you know, $350 million for the House side, $350 million for the Senate side, no transparency, no, um, you know, votes uh, to, to confirm that this is, you know, an appropriate use of that money. These representatives can spend it however they want, right? There's no, there's no way to track and no way there's no uh, approval process necessary when they get their cut they can do whatever they want with it well 
more or less, right? This is sort of the frustration I think you hear from members like like Representative Stewart, right? Is that they've got this money, legislators have an opportunity to maybe throw in some ideas on projects they have, and then they're told by by leadership, you know, Speaker Stevens, what they're gonna what they're actually gonna get without any opportunity for public input, and you know, it just makes it a very obtuse, very very um, concerning process. Um, because it's in the name of the fund. It's a strategic community investment. There should be some strategy behind this stuff. And what this is, is it's a, it's a bill introduced in the darkness of night and, and forced for a floor vote within, you know, 18 hours after it's, after it's, it's uh, actually made available for members to read and review. That's a lot of money moving very fast in Columbus. And, and any conservative, grassroots, fiscally conservative activist, advocate, uh, citizen, uh, should be in, entirely alarmed by how this how this process was managed over the last day and a half. So, um, is it over? I mean, this is it. It passed yesterday, and and then that's it. There's uh, there's no recourse or no uh, reconsideration of this uh, as far as how this money is being distributed. No uh, uh, alternative or appeal process for the 15 counties that go hungry. Well, so here's the funny thing in this, Bob. You know, the last the news cycle over the last 24 hours has not been favorable to the speaker and the process that was run in the Ohio House to allocate this $2 billion. Because, it, you know, it's Schoolhouse Rock 101. You know, one chamber doesn't get to decide how they're going to spend the money. And actually, Senate President Huffman uh, issued a, a, a letter uh, from his office sort of indicating that the way we do business in Ohio isn't where one chamber gets to pick how it's going to spend half the money and the other chamber gets to pick how it's going to spend half its money. This is a $700 million fund that, you know, works through a normal legislative process. The House chooses how to spend, you know, will pass a bill that will propose how to spend it. The Senate will will take that bill up or introduce its own version. They'll go into a conference committee. They'll go to the governor. So the silliest here is um, this is probably just going to, this is probably just DOA. It's going to just stop. And uh, when the Senate picks up its version of this legislation in April or May and has a transparent process for citizens to have their voice heard on it, We'll actually get a cleaner, clearer process. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. these members are going around with a representative Stewart. I heard him mention it earlier on your show. Calls this fool's gold. They're going back to their districts, saying they've got all this money that they're bringing back. The reality is that money is not, not be there. It's not actually there. It has to go to, through a, through a, through a process, and eventually the governor has to sign whatever this bill becomes. Whatever, however, this money gets allocated, the governor has to sign that into law. So, so they're they're getting quite, the, the members who were forced to vote on this thing are going back with false promises, meanwhile getting raked over the coals for a process that was, you know, deceptive and feels a lot like Washington, D.C. politics. It's, it's baffling to me the strategy they're, they're operating on in advancing this legislation. So what I would like to know is if there's a way that we can make sure that that money is not there for the majority of them. I mean, because quite frankly, if they do bring that money, their, 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 their deception and their, and their collusion is going to be, you know, rewarded because they're going to get reelected if they bring that money back, you know, in their various districts. I want them to promise this money and then go back empty handed and saying, well, it looks like we jumped the gun a little bit. This money is not going to be available for us for this reason or that reason. And I want the voters to be livid with them and primary them the hell out of uh, of uh, of Columbus. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, there's there's a couple ways you can do that. One, uh, we're, as I mentioned, we're a grassroots advocacy organization. We put a megaphone to the voices of folks who are frustrated with what's going on in Columbus, what's going on in D.C. Reach out to us, AmericansForProsperity.org. We'll we can help equip you to go out and make your voice heard. But just as important as that, contact your state senator. Right, this 
that they also have a vote and a voice on this issue. Contact your state senator and let them know you want to have a clear, transparent process when they take this legislation up for debate and discussion. So the fight isn't over, uh, but uh, we need to make sure folks, citizens, uh, don't let this one get swept under the rug. They pay attention to what's going on because uh, if it works this time, it's the kind of tactics they'll bring back time and time again. And we've got to hold members accountable through our votes in the primary on March 19th, but also by contacting our senator and communicating our concerns with how this process was run in the House. Yeah, know who your senator is. Make sure you do contact and reach out to them. And, of course, if you are in a district with one of these uh, Blue 22 uh, uh, House members as well, let them know exactly what you plan to do, because uh, we simply cannot abide by this. We are a we are supposedly a Republican-majority state. We're supposedly a Republican-majority General Assembly, and we now have given power to the Democrats to almost essentially say they have the majority. As long as Jason Stevens is doing the bidding of the Democrats and he's got the gavel and he can decide whether or not there's discussion on expenditures or or budgeting or whether or whether a bill an important bill gets a floor vote all of these things if a democrat is holding the gavel then a de- the democrats run the uh, the uh, the entire chamber that's the reality of it even if he's got an r after his name donovan o'neill keep up the great work at americans for prosperity ohio uh stay in touch with us and if you've come to any uh, new information we need to share we'll put you right back on Thanks, Bob. Keep up the good work on your part as well. we'll Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, it's 1125. We'll take our uh, time out here. It'll be our final time out. We've got a bottom-of-the-hour news break, and then we're going to come back, and uh, we're going to hear from you. If you've got something to say, we've been guest-heavy all day long, but I would love to hear from you uh, in this final segment of the broadcast, 216-9010. The Answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and The Answer. All right, it is 11.32. Final segment is underway now at AM 1420, The Answer. Anything that you have heard today that makes you want to speak, uh, question, comment, you name it, 216-901-0945, Good conversations with all of the guests. From FAIR joined us, Dr. Everett Piper joined us. Uh, we had a good conversation with... Um, uh, with uh, Donovan O'Neill, and then of course Brian Stewart is a champion in the Ohio State House. He is a phenomenal uh, representative. I wish uh, well, I want to denigrate it, my representation, but uh, uh, I wish we had more people like him so we could actually have a Republican majority. We do not have a Republican majority in the State House. All right, um, news that is going on right now. Briefly, anyway. Um, President Trump's fate as a candidate is kind of being decided as we speak. The Supreme Court is taking up today Colorado, the appeal of Colorado's uh, decision, their Supreme Court, to deny Donald Trump a spot on the ballot in that state. It is believed that the outcome of this Supreme Court hearing, in other words, their decision as to whether or not Trump can be on the ballot in Colorado, will be used as precedent for all of the other some 15 states that um, have questioned or challenged or tried to take Donald Trump off the ballot, claiming that he engaged in insurrection. So what's about to happen right now will determine whether or not Trump can run for president. Because if he's not on the ballot in Colorado and all of these other states now have that precedent, then he's not going to be on the ballot in a whole bunch of other states, and this whole thing is a, is a big mess. Now we've got to, what, restart the Republican primaries? Fortunately, the good news, I think, is that this is no, in no way going to happen. 
the Supreme Court as questionable as they are, and they are, because, you know, you'd think we can count on a 63 conservative majority to, to do the right thing, the majority, if not all of the time. We've found out that we can't. Uh, remember, the Supreme Court told the Biden administration they can continue to cut down razor wire in Texas to allow more and more illegal immigrants to come in and, and, and steal this country's resources. So I won't take anything for granted, but I will say that this is something that shouldn't even be close, considering the fact that there was never a trial that convicted Donald Trump of insurrection. I've talked about this before, and apologies for the redundancy, but people need to know this. For Colorado's Supreme Court to be able to remove Donald Trump from their ballot for President of the United States, thus taking the vote out of the hands of the people, thus literally removing democracy from uh, from Colorado. It's funny, the left always talks about how everything the right does is an attack on democracy. This literally takes the vote away from the people if Trump's name is not allowed to be there. For the Colorado Supreme Court to decide that his participation in insurrection makes him um, uh, invalid, if you will, and unable to lawfully be on the ballot, they would have to be able to point to the conviction of said uh, uh, insurrection charges. But the problem is there was never a conviction of Donald Trump on insurrection in Colorado or any other court. Not only was there not a conviction, there was never even a trial. If I go back again in reverse chronological order here, not only was there never a trial, there was never an indictment. Continuing in that direction, not only was there never an indictment, there was never a formal charge. The only thing we have that says Donald Trump is an insurrection is CNN, MSNBC, NBC, the media. The media says Donald Trump committed an insurrection or participated in insurrection or incited an insurrection. The media doesn't substitute for the court. So if I'm, you know, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a Supreme Court justice, but as a reasonably intelligent, common sensible man... If I'm watching that hearing, I'm thinking this is going to take five minutes. Because if I'm a Supreme Court justice up there, or if I'm watching them, I would expect them to look down and say, okay, uh, show us the conviction of Donald Trump for uh, inciting an insurrection, and then we'll consider whether or not that makes him uh, ineligible for the ballot. And then they would say, well, there was no conviction, there was no trial, there were no charges. Well, then what are you basing that he participated in an insurrection? Well, you know, the Washington Post said so. Um, every article that talks about January 6th calls it an insurrection. And, you know, Trump was, was in Washington that day. He was still speaking at the ellipse when the, when the insurrection started. And, and even though he told people to peacefully, uh, uh, go down there and patriotically let their voices be heard, uh, we, we think he winked at the time that he said it, which is code for, don't be peaceful. Go go trash the place and try to stop the uh, the the certification. So you know we saw that on TV and read it in the newspapers. So you know, of course he did. It should take zero point two seconds for the justices to say case dismissed. Get the hell out of here, you nuts! But I won't take that for granted because this is how we lose. We underestimate the. Uh, the evil of the other side, we underestimate the dedication and the power of the other side to cheat. 
Um, so I'm not going to take it for granted. But I just want you to know this is going on right now. This hearing is going on right now. And what they come out with, which I, again, fully expect to be what I just described in a much more uh, professional manner, uh, will be, of course, Donald Trump is eligible because there is no evidence that he actually committed or participated in insurrection. Just so you know, if they came back with the reverse, if they came back with something as, as obscene and as absurd as they have done in the past, including on the razor wire story, um, we have a major problem because Nikki Haley that is then our nominee. Unless Ron DeSantis restarts his campaign. Unless Tim Scott restarted them. Now we actually have a full-on primary system. Again, I don't expect that to happen, but I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't tell you this hearing that's going on right now will determine whether or not Donald J. Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president. You better cross your fingers and your toes, make the sign of the cross, say a little prayer to God to to uh, touch the hearts and the minds of the Supreme Court justices to make sure that they deliver the right verdict and that they do indeed declare that Donald Trump is eligible to be on Colorado's ballot and every ballot so that we have a chance of saving this republic in this uh, in this November's election. Lisa Woods from Medina. It wants to talk about McFan. I'm betting that's what Lisa, Lisa Woods wants to talk about. Hey, Lisa, good morning. Good, good morning. Good morning. Yes, this Saturday in two days, um, we'll have Logan Peterson from the RNC speaking about Ohio election integrity and poll observers. And this is pretty cool because we always want to know what we can do, right? And so Logan's presentation will explain the current issues um, and what we're facing and then the presentation will actually serve as official training for those interested in poll observing. And if they uh, sit through this, they can be officially credentialed to be poll observers after the meeting. Wow, think, that's that's think, fantastic. <laughs> well, you're right, because we do. We talk about what can we do to ensure, you know, that it's a fair election, that they're not cheating, and so on and so forth. And poll observers are obviously very, very important. So you're saying they can actually, if they come to the meeting on Saturday, they will it will be officially uh, uh, viewed as being trained, and therefore they can register yep. at that point? Yep. It's, it's not a real oh. long training. I think it, you know, and plus, you know, we'll have questions and answers, bring your questions. And even if you're, you're not a poll worker, you're going to learn or a poll observer, you're going to learn so much. And then you can also, you know, if you can't take that day off, maybe encourage, you know, another family member or something, but you're going to learn so much about what you can do. And I remember when in 2008, my husband was a poll worker and mm-hmm. they sent him to, you know, a, 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 a pretty rough, area, you know, because I, I told him to. He's a Marine, you know, and, and he watched and he came back with, you know, some stories and what he saw. So important. So important. So um, it really is. I encourage. Yeah. And also Mark Paquita is going to uh, stop by. He's He's got, he'll be in the area and he also wants to talk a little bit about his, uh, um, what he's doing to connect conservative leaders uh, to build an engaged, focused electric that uh, will restore the state's to alignment with the Constitution. And so I don't know a whole lot about that yet, but he is going to uh, speak on that probably in the beginning, and then we're going to get into uh, what Logan has to present. So it'll be very meaningful, and there'll probably be some candidates to, to meet as well. All right. Well, it sounds like a real good reason to go to McFan this weekend. Uh, Saturday, 9 o'clock? 
That's right. Saturday, 9 a.m. at the Thirsty Cowboy, and that is at 2743 Medina Road, and it's right uh, 71 and 18. It goes from 9 to 1030. And uh, often we like to go to on tap across the street and some of us continue the conversation and then there's some, you know, and everyone's always invited to join us over there. Good stuff, indeed. Uh, Lisa, keep up the great work, uh, especially the part about getting people registered as poll observers and trained, because uh, that's very, very Thank important. You. We have to uh, we have to make sure, not just in March, obviously, but in November, that we are watching things very, very closely. Keep up the good work. You Thanks, bet. Lisa. Thank you. Uh, there's Lisa Woods. If you haven't been to a Medina County Friends and Neighbors event, <clears throat> highly recommend that you do so, particularly when I'm speaking. Uh, but uh, but no, all the time. And this is a very good one, obviously. Uh, okay, so... Uh, couple of other quick ones here. I mentioned this in my conversation with Dr. Piper earlier, and I want to steer you when you get uh, online later today, and even if you have your phone in your hand right now, go to my Twitter feed, which is just look for Bob France, and the Twitter handle is France Rants. It's largely irrelevant if I'm using my real name. But look for Bob France, and um, shortly, it was from last night, so it won't be too far down in my Twitter page or my Twitter feed. You will find um, uh, a, a video that I tweeted, the caption the caption of which I tweeted uh, is, Satan himself could not have done a better job of pushing and promoting this evil agenda. And then I said, uh, wait, sorry, he did. This is truly Satan's work. It's a video, it's three minutes and 21 seconds long, of the documentary called The War on Children that's produced. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.